Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, the X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exone Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. This edition of A Different Perspective, I am in fact Kevin Randall. There you go. Before I uh, join my guest, or my guest joins me, Peter Davenport, I want to do two quick things. Number one is, for those of you who are interested in the Bermuda Triangle and the number of disappearances there, a ship called Copaxia, I think it was, disappeared in 1925, and it's listed in the various chronicles of disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. It has been found. It sank. Um, if you go back and you look at the um, information about it, they had actually radioed a distress call, said they were taking water, they were listing, and they were in the middle of a tropical storm. So we can take that mystery off the Bermuda Triangle list. Um, also, I did watch the Project Blue Book show last night, and it's getting even worse. Um, I object to the way they're treating the military in that and what they're showing the military people doing. But I did notice one thing that I found interesting. I had mentioned a while back that the General Harding played by Neil McDonough, was wearing an Air Force Commendation Medal, and they're set in 1952, and the Air Force Commendation Medal didn't exist before 1958. I noticed last night that his ribbons have changed. So I wondered if they heard my complaint and took, took it to heart, or they just have no continuity that we need to talk about. Anyway, that was uh, my comments about a couple of things there that I wanted to get off my chest before we began. As I say, I'm going to be joined by Peter Davenport, who is the director of the National UFO Reporting Center since July of 1994. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri, where he lived to the age of 14, and he has my condolences about living in St. Louis. Peter received his undergraduate education at Stanford University in California, where he earned a bachelor's degree in both Russian and biology and a translator's certificate in Russian. And if he learned to speak Russian, he's got my uh, admiration. 
His graduate education was completed at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he earned an MS degree in genetics and biochemistry of fish from the College of Fisheries, Fisheries, and as well as an MBA degree in finance and international business from the Graduate School of Business. So he's a well-educated man here. Peter's worked as a college instructor, a commercial fisherman, a Russian translator in the Soviet Union, a fisheries observer aboard the Soviet fishing vessels, a flight instructor, gliders, and a businessman. Peter was the founding president of the Seattle-based biotechnology company, which at the time employed over 300 scientists and technicians. Peter has been an act, has had an active interest in the UFO phenomenon from his early boyhood. He experienced his first UFO sighting over St. Louis Municipal Airport in the summer of 1954. We'll get him to discuss that a little bit uh, with us here when we begin. And he investigated the first UFO, uh, investigated his first UFO case during the summer of 1965 in Exeter, New Hampshire, which is an interesting case as well. In addition, he has been witness to several anomalous events, possibly UFO related, including a dramatic, dramatic sighting in Baja, California in February 1990. So he wins over me. I've got one really crappy sighting, possibly. I don't know. In addition to being the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Peter is a current member of MUFON and a former co-state section director of King County and a former director of investigation for Washington State Chapter of MUFON. Peter Davenport, welcome to the uh, A Different Perspective. Thank you, Kevin. It's delightful to be here. I've known of you and admired you for decades and it's a real pleasure finally to have an opportunity to do a program with you i'm looking forward to this i am not sure why we haven't done this before uh, yeah. we well we, we we should have and i'm sorry that we've now out of time after that introduction we have to uh go away now forever no i'm just kidding uh <laughs> sometimes we have to be a little silly here i don't know why i enjoy uh, that style i mentioned you mentioned in the in the biography here that we did that you had your first UFO sighting in 1954 in St. Louis. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, by way of preface, Kevin, I can say that that sighting that occurred, I believe it was in the summer, and I believe it was 1954, is the reason that I am sitting here uh, participating in a uh, an interview about UFOs. That was a, really a very profound effect on my life. But it was the summer, and again, I believe the year 1954, and our listeners can read my written account if they'd like to. It's on our website at ufocenter.com. But I was seated in the right-hand seat of a, our family car, which was a 1953 Studebaker, and suddenly the the whole uh, drive-in theater where we were parked erupted in disorder and mayhem. People were running and pointing and shouting, and we didn't know what, what was going on. We didn't know if it was a fight or a fire or somebody was injured or something along those lines. And I noticed that people were moving generally to our right as we faced the screen in the theater. And I looked out the right-hand side of that, uh, 53 Studebaker, and oh my heavens, there was a very dramatic-looking object. It was blood red, fire engine red, and it was about the size of a full moon. It was the shape of a rugby ball, and it was moving very, very slowly at first. Suddenly, as I was watching it, it accelerated from my right to left as I looked out the right-hand side of that car, and it covered about 120 or 140 degrees of arc, that is more than a third of a circle in under, I estimate, two seconds, Kevin. It was a very, very interesting sighting. And my father was in the control tower at St. Louis, which at the time was on the north side of the airport. And he and other air traffic controllers were looking at the object with their binoculars and they couldn't figure out what it was. And it scared my parents. We, as we drove home, I could tell that they were alarmed by that sighting. Was this reported to the Air Force? I don't know. I was six and a half years of age at the time. So I, today I would follow up on it aggressively and look for witnesses and interview them and 
locked the date in place in written form, but at six and a half, I, that was the beginning of my UFO career. Have you, have you ever looked at the Project Blue Book files to see if it's mentioned in there? No, I haven't. That's a good suggestion. I should. Uh, but I haven't done that yet. By a strange coincidence, I'm sitting here with the Blue Book Index because uh, I was working on something else. You say the, uh, the summer of 1954? I would guess that it was July or August of 1954, but the year may be wrong. I, I estimate the year, Kevin, because uh, I believe I was seated in the right-hand seat of that Studebaker that I mentioned earlier, and uh, we got that car. It was a 53 vintage Studebaker, so we got it in the fall of 53, and we didn't have it for more than two or three years. Well, let me say this. Because here's a bizarre thing. I, normally, this I, I have an index with all the Project Blue Book files on them, and normally the book wouldn't be in my office. It would be in the in the what I call the library, filed away. Uh -huh. Apparently, it happened on July 14, 1954, in St. Louis, Missouri. Multiple civilian, and the Air Force explanation was debris in the wind. Oh, that's nonsense! You have you have given me a great service by identifying that. July 14th, I will change the date in my written report on my website, but it was a doozy, a doozy of a sighting. And when I was a kid, because my father worked in the airlines, I prided myself in being able to identify almost any kind of airport airplane, either by eye or by ear. I could tell the difference between a DC-6 and a DC-7, I believe, just by listening to the engines. And the object I saw was nothing that came from this planet. I'm convinced of it. And to have an object accelerate from almost a dead stop and cover 120 to 140 degrees of arc uh, in under two seconds, maybe a second and a half, uh, just rules out any kind of terrestrial aircraft, I feel. I've uh, found myself getting immersed in uh, trying to, to follow up on this sighting because I happen to have some documentation sitting right here. Almost lost track of the time. We're going to have to uh, break away uh, for a few moments here. Uh, I'm here with Peter Davenport. We're talking about UFOs, about his first sighting, and we're doing a little bit of investigative work right now as, as I speak. My blog will have uh, additional information up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Uh, I have for Peter here, the, um, the website is www.nuphoric.org. Is that the one, the correct one? Uh, my website? Yes. My website is ufocenter.com. Nine letters, one word, ufocenter.com. And this is the re and, and and the other one is the reporting organization where people report. Oh, NUFORC takes you to the same website. We we adopted a website and uh, gave it a name, and then we changed the name. But both of those addresses will lead to the same website. Okay, we will be back right after this with Peter Davenport, and we'll follow up a little bit more on his UFO sighting. So stick around. Patty Conklin grew up in Brooktondale, New York with a unique ability. Unlike others, she could see how the vibration of words and emotions affected the physical body. She discovered how to release stored emotion and facilitate healing. This began today's Conklin method of cellular cleansing. The private practice grew with tremendous results, as did her reputation. More and more people sought her out, bringing her into the home for healing. She soon realized she could even teach this to others, and they could shift perception and thus prevent illness from occurring. Patty Conklin quickly became a frequent keynote speaker, and she developed a curriculum for teaching the Conklin method of cellular cleansing. For more information, visit pattyconklin.com. P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N, pattyconklin.com, or call 
404-474-0086. That's 404-474-0086. Mission Evolution is dedicated to the well-being of the planet and animals, as well as the evolution of humankind. One major factor threatening all three is increasing toxicity. Heavy metals and other environmental toxins are poisoning our bodies, deteriorating our brains, blocking our spiritual connection, and shortening our lives. Yet these poisons are extremely difficult to remove. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, and I recently became aware of a product created from the marriage of nature and nanotechnology called Vitality. It's formulated from zoolite, whose crystalline structure binds toxins, gently carrying them out of the body. The light is only as clear as the window through which it shines, Clear your body, shine your light into the world. Visit VitalityHappens.com for a 20% discount. Enter code PATHHOME. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation, focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. I am here with Peter Davenport, he of the National UFO Reporting Center. And when we went away, we were talking about his UFO sighting, and I'd mentioned that I'd found one on um, July 14th in St. Louis, but I found a second one in Normandy, Missouri, which I guess is close to St. Louis, that's listed as unidentified. The only thing I can do right now is look at the index and say, well, these two sightings were there. I, I can't pull up any data on them at the moment, given the way things are set up around here and the way my office is set up. So I'll have to look at that later on, and uh, I will put more information about it in my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com when I get the story up. Uh, so the uh, craft that you saw, you were with your parents at the drive-in movie, and you Correct. say your father worked in the, the control tower, so you're familiar with aircraft, so you know it wasn't an aircraft of some kind. Couldn't possibly have been an aircraft, Kevin. Not one of terrestrial origin, anyway. It was blood red, and I remember how bright it was and how slowly it was moving, uh, but I've forgotten. I seem to recall that it was illuminating the entire airport, and that's a big airport. It has a, a run major runway is uh, uh, 10,000 feet long or longer, two miles long, so... Whatever we were looking at that night was very dramatic, and my parents were shocked by it. I remember, as I mentioned before the break, I remember how alarmed they were as we drove home from the uh, airport to our home in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, they did not like the looks of that event at all. Were they frightened by it or just amazed yeah, by it? Frightened by it, and... Later In later years and decades, when I became a fully-fledged UFO investigator, I noted that my mother was very alarmed by the, by the concept of UFOs. She didn't like that idea at all. And whether it started as a result of that sighting in July, of, July or August of 54, or whether uh, it was just natural uh, fear of the unknown, I never never discovered i never asked her that question i wish she were still alive so i could resolve that issue but my father i remember when we fought, picked up my father on the north side of the airport after the movie uh that was the first thing out of his mouth was uh whatever it was he had seen from the air 
air control tower. Uh, he was not an air traffic controller, but he knew most or perhaps all of the people who staffed the tower. And he was over visiting at the time the event occurred. And they were looking south out of the airport window, out of the control tower windows at the object. I seem to recall, for some reason, with binoculars. And they could not identify it. And this is very close to McDonald Aircraft Corporation, long before it became McDonnell Douglas. So well, what's, what strikes me, they, what strikes me here is, in today's environment, we would have literally dozens of pictures of this thing. Absolutely. But to, and but of course, nobody has pictures from from 1954. No. Did this this inspired your interest in UFOs then? I have thought about that incident. It didn't last for more than five seconds, I would say. But I have thought about that so many thousands of times, trying to figure out what it was we saw. I couldn't begin to estimate the number of times I've ruminated on it and wondered just what it was we saw. And it inspired you to begin UFO investigations? Yes, yes. by the mid, early to mid-1960s, by 62 to 63, I was, uh, I was enamored of this subject. Uh, realizing that if we're dealing with a real phenomenon, it is the most consequential, most dramatic scientific question that has ever confronted mankind to this point in his existence. Namely, are we alone in this huge galaxy or are we not? Now, creatures come, other creatures come from civilizations outside our galaxy. I will be really impressed. They're command of physics must be something that we can't even imagine. Well, I always, I, this came up in something just the other day. Uh, I was in discussion with somebody and talking about uh, what things would be like here in, on Earth in, in a thousand years or two thousand years. And I was thinking that, go put yourself into Roman times. Could you invent, envision airplanes, cars, the internet. I mean, I'm here in Iowa, you're in Washington, the studio is in Canada, and we're having a conversation that will be broadcast all over the world. They could have possibly envisioned anything like that. And of course, we can't really envision what things are going to be like in a thousand years, which is, right. I find, very sad. So I'd like to know. Years ago, they couldn't even have imagined another continent on the planet that they were trapped on. I mean, the, if you'd gone to them and said, there's a place like Iowa out in the central part of another continent. They would have thought you were a madman. They would have crucified you. Well, yes, and and but I mean the even the leaps and bounds in the last fifty years. But I noticed I noticed when I was reading the introduction that uh, one of the first cases you investigated was the Exeter, uh, New Hampshire case from from the mid nineteen sixties. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the incident at Exeter. Yes. Well, I graduated from high school in Derry, New Hampshire in 1965, June of 65. And that summer, before I went off to college, I was working for the Derry News, which was the local newspaper. Uh, the editor was Conrad Quimby, Mr. Quimby. And uh, somehow he and I got on the subject of UFOs early that summer. He was an absolute cast in concrete skeptic. He couldn't believe that people actually believed in UFOs. So we continued that discussion all summer long. Ironically, about the 4th or 5th of September, 19, again, 1965, the uh, Manchester Union leader, a well-known newspaper in that part of the woods, uh, published an article about a sighting that two police officers and a hitchhiker allegedly had experienced near Kensington, New Hampshire. Actually, the incident occurred in Kensington, which is just south of Exeter, Exeter being the home of the celebrated boys' school back then. And uh, the editor, my editor, had read that article in the Manchester Union Leader, and he commissioned me as a suddenly as a cub reporter. He said, Davenport, I want you to get up to Exeter and get us a story. Find out what happened there. So I went up and I 
interviewed both police officers. Their names were Hunt and Roland, I believe. And I interviewed over the telephone a young 18-year-old high school graduate who was about to go into the Navy. His name was Norman J. Muscarello. And the three of them allegedly had stood on a remote road staring off into a very large 40 or 50-acre field watching a disc-shaped object with pulsing lights around its flange zip all over this field. And uh, I was left convinced, and I think I expressed this sentiment in the two articles I wrote for the Dairy News, I was convinced that they were serious-minded people and they were telling the truth about what had happened to them a few days earlier. It was uh, pretty heady stuff for a young young cub reporter. I was 17 at the time and uh, really enjoyed that mission. It was a lot of fun. Well, didn't one of the police officers have an encounter with a woman, uh, I, I want to say minutes, but some, some short period of time before that who was freaked out on the highway that she'd seen something like that and he exactly. calmed her down and took her to the police station and then the call came in? Yes. He was out on uh, normal patrol and there's a very large turnaround near uh, Exeter, uh, traffic turnaround, traffic circle, I guess I should call it. And as he was cruising, driving around that circle, as I recall it, and I'm going on memory, Kevin, he saw an automobile parked or stopped out in the middle or close to the middle of that traffic circle. He thought that was odd, and he decided to investigate. And he found a young woman who was hunkered down in the back seat. Her dog, I believe, was on the floor in the front seat of the car, and she was babbling about having been chased by a disc-shaped object. Well, this was earlier in the evening, probably 9 or 10 o'clock uh, in the evening. Sometime after midnight, and I think it was 1 or 2 a.m., four or five hours after this incident with the one young woman and the dog, uh, an officer Toland, who was the radio operator, put out an all-points bulletin to his cruiser. I think there was only one cruiser in the town at the time that uh, apprising their, his officers that a young man had just burst into the Exeter Police Department babbling about having been chased by a saucer. Let me uh, stop you right there. Let me stop you right there because it's time once again. I've got to take a quick break here. I'm with uh, Peter Davenport. We're now talking about the incident at Exeter, and when we come back, we'll get a, little, a, a few more details about it. Uh, once again, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I'll have some additional information up there when we get done. The uh, website is um, ufocenter.com or nuforc.org. Both of them will access the website, so you can take a look at the, what's going on at the National UFO Reporting Center. And maybe we'll find out exactly what inspired him to start that uh, later on. But we're going to we'll finish up on the Exeter case when we come back. So hang around. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com, or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Xzone Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. 
Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Join Patty Conklin and Healing Within Radio each week. More than entertainment, Healing Within offers educational, useful tools for everyday life. Listen for help overcoming fear, anxiety, and depression. Patty knows about eliminating cancer, MS, dementia, Parkinson's, and a host of illnesses that we face every day. Life can be good. Life is good. All you need are simple tools to start changing your life. Start right now by visiting pattyconklin.com, P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N. No matter where you are in the world, you can work with Patty through Skype, phone, or in person, visiting one of her retreats in Georgia. Visit pattyconklin.com today or call our offices at 404 474 0086. That's pattyconklin.com or call 404 474 0086. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. I am talking with Peter Davenport. We were discussing the Exeter, New Hampshire case, which is from um, July. Or I'm sorry, September 3rd, 1965, and uh, we had gotten, I guess, the young man to the police station after saying that he had been chased by a flying saucer. And I think the police officer who dealt with the woman was also in the police station at the time. And from that point, they went back out uh, to see if they could find anything. Yeah, I don't know what the disposition of the female was who had been interviewed by Officer Bertrand was his name, B-E-R-T-R-A-N-D. But Officer Bertrand, after he had spoken with that panic-stricken woman about her having been allegedly chased by a saucer, as she drove along, I think it was Route 121, close to Exeter, when this call came out from his headquarters about a young man, a teenager, Again, this is Norman Muscarello, had burst into the police department, and uh, Officer Bertrand decided that there might be a link between these two alleged incidents. So he drove into the Exeter police station, he picked up Mr. Muscarello, and they drove together in a police car out to the site where Muscarello allegedly had last seen this saucer. And they walked into the field, and as they were walking into the center of this very large, I estimate 30 or 40 acre field, uh, Officer Hunt pulled up in a second cruiser, and the two gentlemen out in the field, Bertrand and Muscarello, turned around and started walking towards Officer Hunt's cruiser. As they did so, uh, Officer Bertrand told me during my interview of him that they could suddenly see that their bodies were casting a shadow ahead of them as they walked generally to the south. And that caused him to panic. He whirled around just in time to see a saucer rising from behind a knoll that had served to conceal it from their vision. Well, Officer Bertrand reported to me his first instinct. He was a, a Korean War veteran with the U.S. Air Force, by the way, his first instinct was to draw his sidearm for protection. Uh, He wanted to protect 
Mr. Muscarello, most of all, he reported to me, good officer's instincts. And Officer Hunt cautioned Officer Bertrand about drawing his firearm. He urged him to leave it in his holster. So the two of them, three of them now, stood on the edge of the road where their police cruisers were parked and watched this disc flit around the, the field. Officer Bertrand, during my interview, emphasized how fast it could move. He said it could go from one position to the next on the other side of the field, and it would execute that, that uh, change of location faster than the human eye could follow it. You were saying that you accept the story told by the police officer and the young man as being authentic. You have no doubt they were telling you the truth. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. To this day, I have no doubt. And at the time, I was impressed by their sincerity, and uh, they were no-nonsense type people. Again, Officer Bertrand had been in the military during the Korean War, and uh, he was a sober-minded individual by nature. And uh, I'm sure that the incidents that I've described here occurred as they outlined them to me. It was a very dramatic event. And uh, also I should mention that there was a horse corral across the, across the road, this rural road that the three of them were standing on as they watched this disc. And uh, as I mentioned in my newspaper articles in 1965, the horses had kicked the cross, cross members out of the fence. They had escaped from the corral. They clearly were upset by something, and I presume it was that, that machine, that disc, that UFO that was flitting all over. It, it would move several hundred yards faster than the people could recognize that it had even moved at all. You know, you know Philip Class, Yes. The great UFO oh, debunkers yes. suggested that the um, high-powered lines in the area created an ionization of the atmosphere, which was glowing, and this is what the what the witnesses saw. Only Philip Class could come up with such a ludicrous ex explanation. It was nothing like that, and uh, the high-tension power lines were behind. As I recall it now, I'm, again, I'm going on memory. I've stood on the very point where those officers were standing with the, the hitchhiker, Mr. Muscarello. And I re seem to recall that the high-tension power lines were to the south of them. They, in other words, as they faced the north as they watched this disc, the high-tension power lines were behind them. But so you, you have no doubt that they did not see an ionization of the atmosphere? No doubt whatsoever. And if you include that fact with the fact that this young woman was being chased by something that seemed to exhibit intelligence and seemed to focus on her presence on the highway, I think, that, I think we have enough evidence, evidence, Kevin, to rule out ball lightning. It's just an absurd proposition. I was doing an investigation on another case, or actually I was working on a book about another case, and this idea of this ionization came up in the um, explanations. Hector Quintanella had suggested it at, at Minot as the explanation, and it made no sense to me, and I knew a physicist, so I gave him a call and asked him about this, and he suggested that if that was a legitimate explanation, then you would have these sorts of phenomena, these glowing balls of plasmas sighted much more frequently than they yeah. um, than they are reported. And it is not a viable explanation. But I know at the time there were numbers that were very, number of people, especially in the Air Force, who were very impressed with uh, class's explanation and used it until it was pretty well debunked by atmospheric physicists. It said, yeah, you've got ionizations, but they don't tend to glow and they're not visible and they don't really show up on the radar. So you have to kind of ignore those. Yeah. Another uh, thing that tends to militate against the ionization phenomenon, alleged ionization phenomenon, is the hitchhiker, Norman Muscarello, again, age 18 at the time, he was, just as by way of a side note, he had enlisted in the U.S. Navy and he was home uh, for a couple of months. It was the delayed enlistment program. So he was 
hitchhiking after he had gone to visit a girlfriend down in Massachusetts. But uh, the uh, ionization possibility is just absurd. Uh, I've forgotten a point I was going to make. I got off on my side note, but... <laughs> that's, that's what happens when you get old. You lose track yeah. of things. <laughs> you do, and I'm older than you are, I see, by a couple years or so. Yeah, I, but, I noticed uh, that, too, and was going to laugh. Yeah. But, uh, for no reason whatsoever. The <laughs> um, fact that this woman saw it earlier in the evening, I think, is sufficient to rule out ionization. I, well, I, I don't know what the I don't remember what the official Air Force explanation is for that one. And my index that I have sitting on my desk doesn't go to 1966. That volume's in the other room, so I can't get to it easily to look that up. I, I I've noticed that you had an interest in the Phoenix Lights, and I had on Mike Rogers several several months ago, who had a take on the on the Phoenix Lights. So what was your what was your uh, take on that? Mike and I have exchanged a number of emails, and I, I'm convinced that he's going down a, a rabbit hole. Uh, in my opinion, the Phoenix Lights event was the most dramatic major sighting in the history of modern ufology that started in June or July of 1947, June with the Ken Arnold sighting, of course. But... I was one of the first, to, I think, to receive calls from citizens that night uh, about what they were seeing over Phoenix. And it was not just Phoenix. It was surrounding communities and even neighboring states. New Mexico was had, we have sightings from New Mexico. And the first sighting, speaking chronologically, the first sighting occurred up in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, well, let me let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you here. I hate to do that once again, but I'm going to have to take a break. Sure. I am here with Peter Davenport. We're now moved on to the Phoenix Lights. We've discussed a number of interesting UFO cases, and we will be back uh, to talk a little bit more about the Phoenix Lights and maybe uh, get an idea of what we need to do for the uh, UFO Reporting Center and how you can make your reports if you've seen something to that. Uh, once again, I will have information on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Take a look at Encounter in the Desert, which is my book on the Lonnie Zamora sightings, or sighting from 1964, and of course, Roswell in the 21st century, which deals with the um, look at the Roswell case, a re-examination of with the information that we have in today's environment. I will be back right after this with Peter Davenport talking a little bit more about UFOs, so please stick around. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. 
Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. They're here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simultv, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Memorable dynamic presentations are a not so secret weapon in the business world. Do you have a powerful message that must be shared, but you haven't found a way to deliver that message? Do you want to be known as a top public speaker who gets amazing results? Are you ready to create and deliver your powerful message? Thomas Hides can help you create and deliver your speech to get the results you desire. Visit IconQuality.com. Did you expect your business to flourish, but instead it plateaued or didn't get off the ground yet? Would you like to achieve massive goals and discover new sources of income within your business? When you're ready to experience that type of success with fast results, Cindy Hendricks is the business coach for you. Her work with entrepreneurs and business owners has been life-changing. To get you and your business where you want to be, go to imaginemoresuccess.com. Has the fear of public speaking stalled your business or personal life? What would you give to develop and maintain supreme confidence? Have an invaluable private program to always perform at your best. Imagine how you would feel. You can have all that and so much more today with Thomas Hyde's life-changing course called Number One Fear Unleashed. Visit NumberOneFear.com and be liberated from your fear of public speaking. I am here with Peter Davenport. We are going to be talking about uh, some of the things we've talked about before. Uh, before we moved on to the Phoenix Lights, uh, Peter, you had a point you wanted to make uh, that dealt with the Exeter case, and that was? Oh, yes. Uh, about the alleged Phil Kloss's allegation that it was just nothing but ball lightning. The hitchhiker, uh, Norman Muscarello, reported to me that as he was walking down this road in Kensington, New Hampshire, uh, he became aware of this disc that was flitting about the sky. He started jogging and then running to get away from it, and he became so scared he dove into a swamp and a thicket on the south side of the road across the street from this this uh, field where he was later to see the object again with 
two police officers. He reported to me that as he hid in this thicket, the object came directly above him and stopped, and it tilted 90 degrees, and it turned its high beams on. He said he's never experienced light as bright as that. And uh, that, that anecdote, if it's true, and I suspect it is, uh, tends to milit- strongly militate against ball lightning of any kind or ionized uh, gas. Well, well, you realize the, the the new explanation is swamp gas because he dove into a swamp, so yeah. or a swampy area. And of course, the term swamp gas was to be introduced by J. Allen Hynek in uh, Hillsdale, Michigan, later at Hillsdale College uh, in March of '66. So, this uh, the possibility that this hitchhiker had heard the term swamp gas and decided to use it for his explanation is just out of the question. Well, when we went away, you'd mentioned the Phoenix lights were not just relegated to Phoenix, but they had been seen in other states. And one of the first sightings was, actually, I think it was in Henderson as opposed to Las Vegas, but I mean, they're co-joined right. communities. So it's the sort of the same difference. Las Vegas, yeah, it was Henderson, Nevada. You're correct on that point, I believe. That's the first uh, first location where we received a report from. But the said, Phoenix lights, I don't think people understand how dramatic the Phoenix lights were. Uh, the objects that loitered over that city for up to two hours were immense. Uh, to give our listeners some idea of how immense, at one time an object was hovering above Camelback Mountain, and it was seen for a duration of about five minutes by Mrs. Susan Watson and four of her children, two sons, two daughters, and at that moment, we have solid evidence that comes from inside Luke Air Force Base. The object that was hovering motionless above Camelback Mountain was being approached, intercepted, call it, by two F-15s with the Maryland Air National Guard, which I think earlier that day had chaperoned the President's, President Clinton's uh, jet down to Florida so he could play golf with Greg Norman. But that object that hovered over Camelback Mountain subtended an arc of about 140, 35 to 40 degrees, and it, it was at 9,000 feet. According to the uh, F-15 pilot, the lead pilot on the intercept, he was at 9,000 feet at the level of the object. And those two figures allow one to do the trigonometric calculation, and it translates to an object that was roughly eight miles, 8.23 miles, the trigonometric calculation gives us from wingtip to wingtip. So the objects were huge. And the reason I mention that is for the dramatic sake of the sighting. But also, I laugh at those people who say, well, there couldn't be life around such and such a star because it doesn't have planets. Well, we appear to be dealing with extremely intelligent people or creatures, I should say, who have a extraordinary command of technology, and they appear to build their own their own habitations. Well, I would think I would think the, I would think the argument that there's not uh, planets around other stars has pretty well been shot down by all the exoplanets we've discovered in the last fifteen or twenty years. And I think in 1997, the problem was we postulated planets around other stars we just didn't know and now we know and some of the things we believe to be true for example there wouldn't be planets around double stars or triple stars we find out that there are planets around those uh yes. stars as well so the the galaxy is well populated with planets in, uh, in other places um but wasn't part of the problem is the the maryland national guard was also dropping flares and some of the video sh- actually shows those flares well, I don't believe it was the Air National Guard. I believe it was the Air Force Base near Tucson had launched uh, A-10s, Warthogs, that launched flares. But that didn't occur until a few minutes after 10 p.m. The Phoenix Lights event started at about 8.15 or maybe even a little earlier. And it had gone on for two hours before flares were seen over uh, Gila Bend firing Barry M. Goldwater, Gila Bend firing range. So my suspicion 
is that those flares, and I believe they were flares, Lynn Kitai and I tend to disagree on this point, uh, those lights that were visible to the southwest of Phoenix at about 10 or 10.05 p.m. that night were probably uh, red herring. They were probably a deception by the Air Force to cover the dramatic nature of what they were fully aware of. The Air Force knew that they had a problem as early as 8.35 p.m. that night when the two F-15s intercepted this immense object. The pilot reported to his ground crew, when the pilots returned to Luke Air Force Base in their F-15Cs, the lead pilot was, for some reason, unable to get out of his cockpit under his own steam. His ground crew had to open his canopy, undo his chest, lap, and knee straps, and physically lift him out and get him upright on the platform beside the aircraft. Uh, While they were doing that, I was told by an airman six hours later, while they were doing that, he was recounting to them what he had just been through. And I have all of this on tape. So if anybody has any questions about it, I can play the tape for them. Well, let's let's break away here because I'm running out of time. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the uh, um, your uh, reporting center. Well, thank you for doing that. The one thing I would like to leave our listening audience with is if they have at any time in their lives, whether it's eight minutes ago or eight decades ago, experienced a UFO or a UFO sighting or what they suspect was a UFO, I would like to take this opportunity to encourage them to most of all write it down, get all the details captured. Most people want to just talk and talk and talk about their sightings, as I have done during this program. But that doesn't do a bit of good. What they have to do is write down the details of their sighting. And in addition to writing it down, getting it to an organization like mine, the National UFO Reporting Center, or MUFON is perfectly good, or both. And there are other UFO organizations as well that have report sites. But I'd like to encourage our listeners to be sure not to leave this planet without having written down the details of their UFO sighting and reported it to a UFO authority or organization. So send it to your uh, your UFO center yes. at www.ufocenter.com. UFOcenter.com. We have a blank online report form. It's like a blank job application. You can just write out the details of your report, spell check it, copy and paste it into the description box of our report form, fill in the other boxes, the time, the date, the duration, the location, and contact information for the witness. And we will then post that report, albeit anonymously. We do not release any personal information about people who contact our center. And that will preserve the information and make it available to the public. Well, thank you much, uh, Peter. Appreciate you taking your time to join us here on a different perspective. And uh, we'll have to do it again. I'd love to. And it's been a delight working with you, Kevin. I appreciate Uh, the invitation. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the kind words. Next week, I'm going to do something a little different, I believe. I've been looking into the drone reports from um, northwestern Colorado, northeastern Colorado, I'm sorry, southwestern Nebraska and uh, eastern, southeastern Wyoming over the last few weeks. And I uh, want to do a program about that, sort of an investigative report about that. So it's just going to be me kind of filling you in on what I've learned about the drones and how I've gathered the information and how it's come about. Uh, Because I can't find one person that really is... um, I guess, cognizant of everything going on, who wouldn't have to pull all this information together by him or herself. And, you know, these things have been uh, investigated by, I think, Greg Long, Susan Swiatek, uh, Bill Murphy, to name just three of them. And there's newspaper reports. And I've kind of pulled all this information together. So next week, I want to do that and give you an idea of what's going on with Colorado drones. And also, as I say repeatedly, uh, I'm going to look up a little bit more about the sighting I believe that Peter Davenport had back in um, 1950, 
five, I think he said, 1954, and I'll put the information up on the blog so you can see what the Air Force had to say on the um, unidentified sighting and the other one from the St. Louis area at the time. And please, if you have questions, uh, you can put them at the end of a, one of the blog entries. Uh, I won't necessarily post it. It'll be anonymous, and then I'll ask the questions for the person coming up next time about uh, what, what interests you in their investigation. Take a look at um, Roswell in the 21st century. I think it's the best content, compendium of the information as we have it today. And of course, uh, Encounter in the Desert about the um, Lani Zamora sighting. I will be back in 167 hours. So look for us in about a week. Thank you much. Thank you.